Good evening. A progressive DA is recalled in California, a threat against a Supreme Court justice and testimony on gun violence on Capitol Hill. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said today the Russian invasion of Ukraine must end to stem the growing food, fuel and finance crisis, which he says could push tens of millions more people across the world into hunger and poverty this year. The Secretary General has been involved in behind the scenes negotiations trying to secure a deal allowing the export of Ukrainian produced food through the Black Sea and the unimpeded access to global markets for Russian food and fertilizers. I've asked Rebecca Greenspan and my humanitarian chief Martin Griffiths to coordinate two task forces to help find a package deal that allows for the safe and secure export of Ukrainian produced foods through the Black Sea and unimpeded access to global markets for Russian food and fertilizers. Ukraine's food production and the food and fertilizer produced by Russia must be brought back into world markets despite the war. Food prices are at near record highs. Fertilizer prices have more than doubled, sounding an alarm everywhere. Without fertilizers, shortages will spread from corn and wheat to all staple crops, crops, including rice, with a devastating impact on billions of people in Asia and South America too. This year's food crisis is about lack of access. Next year's could be about lack of food. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. After Russia's February 24th incursion into Ukraine, the Secretary General quickly established a global crisis response group to deal with the expected impact of the war's disruption on the Black Sea region, which is one of the world's largest breadbaskets. The group's coordinator is United Nations Trade and Development Chief Rebecca Grinspan. She warned that the current food crisis could escalate into a global food catastrophe by next year. And President Joe Biden arrived in Los Angeles today to host nearly two dozen Latin American leaders at the Ninth Summit of the Americas to demonstrate unity at a time of increased skepticism of the United States in the region. His mission is made more difficult by several leaders who are boycotting, including leaders from Mexico and Central America. Biden had explained the lack of invites to the leaders of Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela as United States opposition to countries, he says, are run by dictators. But also among those left off the list was Juan Guaido, the U.S.-backed opposition leader in Venezuela. Although Biden did speak with Guaido by telephone as he flew to Los Angeles, Biden has been interested in rekindling relations with Venezuela to make up for oil lost to Russia's war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, in Caracas, the National Assembly voted to reject the exclusion of the country from the summit. The lawmakers called the U.S. decision not to invite Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba as illegal, discriminatory and offensive. Roy Daza is deputy of the National Assembly of Venezuela. The government of the United States pretends to impose and pretends to Los Angeles sea para dar instructions. Bueno, señor Biden, nosotros le decimos desde aquí, desde la Asamblea Nacional, que nosotros no vamos a recibir instrucciones de usted. Nosotros le decimos que nosotros vamos a desarrollar toda la política que podamos poner adelante. 
Partial translation, well, Mr. Biden, we tell you from here, from the National Assembly, that we're not going to receive instructions from you. Other Latin American leaders also decided to skip the summit, such as Bolivian President Luis Arce, Honduran President Xiomara Castro, and Guatemala's president. A senior policy analyst at the Washington-based Center for Economic and Policy Research is Goyami Long. He says Latin America is looking for an alternative to centuries of U.S. domination of their politics. Yeah, so I think it's certainly a sign that Latin American countries are fed up with the Monroe Doctrine. It's, but it's not the first time this has happened. We had a first decade and a half of the 21st century that was marked by a number of rebellions uh, during what was often known as the Pink Tide. Uh, U.S. hegemony was, uh, you know, questioned in the region, uh, and there was a lot of pushback against sort of U.S. imperialism, I suppose one should call it. But then for the last five to seven years, there's been a return to more conservative governance in Latin America. And Trump, uh, former President Donald Trump, managed to sort of impose, reimpose the Monroe Doctrine, which he actually made explicit. He called it the Monroe Doctrine, which the Democrats actually don't actually call it by name. And so in the last few years, you've had a return of U.S. hegemony. Uh, so this is a, a sign, the, the pushback against the U.S. exclusion of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua specifically in a number of Latin American countries is a sign of a renewed shift to, I suppose, the left, uh, a renewed non-aligned Latin America in the context of a new Cold War. Uh, yeah, it basically signals that these qualms with U.S. hegemony and double standards and excluding countries and including others, which also, which actually have problematic human rights records or democratic problems, so a lot of these double standards, uh, the, these qualms are not going away. And I think it's going to be a feature of the present, it's going to be a feature of the future relationship between the U.S. and Latin America. Latin Americans are a little bit fed up with the U.S. sort of banning countries or based on their human rights record or on their rule of law on their democracy record and yet not banning others which are equally if not more problematic which kind of signals that the real reason behind all this isn't democracy or human rights but you know sort of obedience and hegemony and and so yeah latin america so this summit of the americas is has already been enacted in the way before it's happened the, this summit of the americas is essentially about that debate is this an opening for Russia, China, Iran, for example, to get more involved? Yeah, I think we sh should definitely read this uh, sort of impasse over the summit of the Americas in, in, the, in the global context. Latin America and the global south in general, but certainly Latin America, is not wanting to play the same role that it's played in the past of just aligning with the United States in the context of the Cold War as it did in the first Cold War. Now that there's a new Cold War being announced for the 21st century, you know, Russia's probably, a lot of Latin Americans see that the Cold War with Russia is sort of a preamble of the greater Cold War with China. Uh, and let's not forget, Russia plays a minor role in Latin America, but China does not. China plays a huge role in Latin America. It's one of the biggest in, uh, sources of investment. It's the biggest trading partner for a number of Latin American states, including some of the, the bigger countries, including Brazil. Uh, and the Latin Americans aren't going to want to choose, like they had to in the last Cold War, between the Soviet Union and, and the United States. They're not going to want to choose this time between the United States and China because China is bringing a lot of opportunities to Latin America that the Soviet Union wasn't necessarily doing you know, back then. So I think that choice is going to be much more difficult for the United States to impose on its backyard, as often been uh, derogatively called. And I think that 
yeah, we could expect some non-alignment. The summit of the Americas is certainly a sign of this, and we can expect more non-alignment in the years to come if the United States really tries to polarize things and put Latin Americans against the wall and tell them, you know, you have to choose. I'm not sure that strategy is going to work. Guillaume Long is senior policy analyst at the Washington-based Center for Economic and Policy Research. President Biden says he's planning to unveil a new economic partnership with Latin American nations, although the plan stops short of a trade agreement that would expand market access to the United States. And here in the United States, yesterday was primary day throughout the country. Chesa Boudin, the progressive prosecutor in charge of the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, was defeated yesterday in a recall election bankrolled by local and national conservatives. Elected in 2019 on a promise to radically transform the city's legal system, Boudin quickly became the target of a years-long smear campaign and bitter recall fight. Boudin spoke last night. People are angry. They're frustrated. And I want to be very clear about what happened tonight. The right-wing billionaires outspent us three to one. They exploited an environment in which people are appropriately upset. And they created an electoral dynamic where we were literally shadow boxing. Voters were not asked to choose between criminal justice reform and something else. They were given an opportunity to voice their frustration and their outrage, and they took that opportunity. And that's Chesa Boudin. Boudin is the son of two 60s radicals sentenced to long prison terms for a botched robbery to fund their idea of a revolution, which gives him an insight being uh, one of the few DAs to have actually uh, grown up visiting his parents in prison. Major funders of Boudin's recall included big players in Silicon Valley like David O. Sachs, the founding chief operating officer of PayPal, who also invested in Facebook, Uber, SpaceX, Airbnb, and other major tech companies. The biggest group behind the recall was Neighbors for a Better San Francisco, whose single largest donor is William Oberndorf, a never-Trump Republican who's donated millions to GOP politicians, including Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, and Jeb Bush. Among Boudin's more criticized policies was ending cash bail for certain charges. Police in the Bay Area had apparently slowed down their operations in a sort of wildcat strike, trying to boost crime stats before the vote. And Attorney General Merrick Garland announced on Wednesday a team of nine law enforcement experts will help review the law enforcement response to last month's deadly school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The review came at the request of the city's mayor. Justice Department is undertaking a critical incident review of the law enforcement response that day at the request of the Uvalde mayor. The review will be comprehensive, it will be a transparent, and it will be independent. We will be assessing what happened that day. We will be doing site visits at the school. We will be conducting uh, interviews of uh, an extremely wide variety of stakeholders, witnesses, families, law enforcement, government officials, school officials. Um, and we will be reviewing the resources that were made available after the, um, in the aftermath. The review will culminate in a final report which will include our findings and recommendations, and it will be made public. And that was Merrick Garland earlier today. The Texas Department of Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw said school district police chief Peter Arandando made the wrong decision for police not to enter the classroom in Uvalde, Texas, 
to encounter the gunman. Nineteen children and two teachers were killed at the Texas Elementary School. Officials say that Arandando was not carrying a police radio at the time of the incident and that 911 calls from students were not being relayed to Arandando. And... In Washington, a man carrying a gun, a knife, and zip ties was arrested this morning near Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house, actually in Maryland, outside of D.C., after threatening to kill the justice. Nicholas John Roski, 26, of Simi Valley, California, was charged with the attempted murder of a Supreme Court justice. Roski was dressed in black when he arrived by taxi just after 1 a.m. outside Kavanaugh's home in the Washington suburb. He had a Glock 17 pistol, ammunition, a knife, as I said, zip ties, pepper spray, duct tape and other items that he told police he would use to break into Kavanaugh's house and kill him. That's according to a criminal complaint filed by law enforcement. Roski told police he was upset by a leaked draft opinion suggesting the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion case. He also said he was upset over the school massacre in Ovalde and believed Kavanaugh would vote to loosen gun control laws, the affidavit said. In Washington, Representative Stephen Scalise, who was shot by a uh, deranged anti-Republican attacker during a uh, House softball game, said that Biden and other Democrats are encouraging these bad actors. And you see that there was a man arrested just a little while ago last night uh, out in front of Justice Kavanaugh's house trying to kill him. When we were vocal a few weeks ago, speaking out against this encouragement you saw from the White House on down to encourage people to go to the homes, the private homes of Supreme Court justices. It is a dangerous trend. Exercising First Amendment rights is one thing. Encouraging people to go to the homes of Supreme Court justices, you see where that can lead. And it's a shame. Um, Thank God law enforcement was able to arrest the man who was intending Uh, on committing that action. But uh, it just reminds us all, let's try to continue to focus on problems, not try to create problems. And that's Representative Stephen Scalise, a Republican. The court currently is weighing a challenge to New York's requirements for getting a permit to carry a gun in public, a case that could make it easier to be armed on the streets of New York and other large cities. And the United States remains in a heightened threat environment, as noted in a bulletin that was released today by the uh, National Terrorism Advisory System of the Department of Homeland Security. In the coming months, according to the bulletin, it says that several recent attacks have highlighted a dynamic and complex nature of the threat environment. It goes on to say in the coming months, we, the Department of Homeland Security, expects the threat environment to become more dynamic as several high-profile events could be exploited to justify acts of violence against a range of possible targets. It goes on to say these targets could include public gatherings, faith-based institutions, schools, racial and religious minorities, government facilities and personnel, U.S. critical infrastructure, the media, and perceived ideological opponents. People who they refer to as threat actors, the government says, have recently mobilized to violence due to factors such as personal grievances, reactions to current events, and adherence to violent extremist ideologies, including racially or ethnically motivated or anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremism. 
It goes on to say in the bulletin that was released today that foreign adversaries, including terrorist organizations and nation-state adversaries, also remain intent on exploiting the threat environment to promote or inspire violence, sow discord, or undermine U.S. democratic institutions. It goes on to say the Department of Homeland Security continues to assess that the primary threat of mass casualty violence in the United States stems from lone offenders and small groups motivated by a range of ideological beliefs and or personal grievances. And in related news today, Congressman Jamal Bowman here of New York passed a resolution condemning the Great Replacement Theory for the first time in history. The resolution passed the House 218 to 205. Representative Bowman received widespread support from the Democratic Caucus. The Great Replacement Theory has been the root cause of a string of hateful mass murders and terrorist acts around the world from Buffalo, New York to Christchurch, New Zealand. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a historical connection to the 19th century in her comments at a news conference outside the Capitol today. The nation of this replacement theory advocacy and gun violence is poisonous. It's explosive. And we have seen it take lives. But it is not new to our country. And this is what I want to read because we're going to be hearing from so many members and, and guests testifying here. This is what happened in a previous century, a nativist, a nativist party that peaked in the 1850s, filling the vacuum left by Henry Clay's death in the collapse of the Whig Party, viewed German and Irish immigrants as a threat to their vision of an Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation. As they espoused extreme anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic rhetoric, calling for restrictions on immigration, exclusion of foreign-born voters, barring Catholics from holding office, and imposing a 21-year residency requirement for citizenship. The know-nothing's racist legacy has lingered. It's down there. From the targeting of Asian immigrants in the late 19th century to hateful anti-immigrant rhetoric today. Nancy Pelosi and Buffalo resident Michelle Spikes spoke about the attacks at the top supermarket last month that tragically impacted her family. I was one of the only ones uniquely but not um, happily who lost two members in that fatal shooting, that massacre. I'm here because with every passion... Emmy, with every fight and every vigor, I will not stop until we take a candid look and keep the focus where it is. On May 14th, there were 10 victims who lost their lives and three who will never probably have the same capacity of life again. Until we put aside our differences of our political stance, be it Democrat or Republican, be it black or be it white, and focus on the matter that white supremacy is alive and well, that it needs to be called what it is, that it is not some deranged, delusional person who acted this way, but he was motivated, he was educated, and he was fed a daily appetite of hate. This is what we need to look at, America. Michelle Spikes from Buffalo, New York. And also on Capitol Hill today, there was hearings into the uh, tragedy that occurred in Ovalde, Texas. An 11-year-old in the fourth grade 
Maya Cerillo, who survived the school shooting at Robb Elementary School in Ovalde, said she covered herself in another student's blood to trick the shooter into thinking she was already dead. Cerillo, wearing a sunflower tank top and her hair pulled back in a ponytail, spoke softly as she answered questions for two minutes on video about what she endured that day in the classroom just two weeks after she witnessed her friends and teachers die in a deadly school shooting. Mr. and Mrs. Rubio, you are now recognized. 
Miguel Cerillo, the father of Mia Cerillo, who you heard at the top of that clip, an 11-year-old in fourth grade who survived the school shooting at Rob Elementary School in Ovalde by covering herself in another student's blood, tricking the shooter into thinking she was already dead. And Mayor Eric Adams made the trip to Washington. He also was talking about gun legislation today. I am Eric Adams, and I am honored to appear before you today as the 110th mayor of the great city of New York to discuss the ways we can protect public safety and prevent gun violence. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, it is high noon in America. Time for every one of us to decide where we stand on the issue of gun violence. Time to decide if it's more important to protect the profits of gun manufacturers, or the lives of our children. Time to decide if we are going to be a nation of laws or confederation of chaos, and we must do it now. It is high noon in America, our country, the country I love. The clock is ticking every day, every minute, towards another hour of death. I'm here today to ask every one of you and everyone in this Congress to stand with all of us to end gun violence and protect the lives of Americans. We are facing a crisis that is killing more Americans than war, a crisis that is now the number one cause of death for our young people, a crisis that is flooding our cities with the illegal guns faster than we can take them off the street. We need Congress to take the handcuffs off the barrel of alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosive, known as ATF, and let them do their jobs. That means confirming President Biden's nominee as soon as possible. And that is Mayor Eric Adams in Washington today. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer, Georgie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.